Meditations with Ryan Smallmack. Greetings and welcome back to Meditations. I'm your host, Ryan Zlomak, and if you're coming back and you're here for more, I really appreciate you coming back to this little auditory playground. If you're here for the first time, welcome to my show. This is a show all about making space for conversations with interesting people, and it is an absolute joy and privilege to have you here. On top of it being a joy and privilege, it's also a monumental episode. This is episode 10. We've made it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten episodes, and each one I just keep getting more and more thankful for. This one in particular, I wanted to have some way to celebrate this sort of monumental moment, so we are traveling all the way across the sea to the UK to interview Tim Allen. Tim Allen is a stop-motion animator who uh, is is huge in the industry. He's known for working on Tim Burton's The Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie. Uh, he's worked with Wes Anderson on the Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, and his performances have won Academy Awards for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Currently, he uh, just finished up working with Sam Fell, the director of Paranorman, who uh, recently made Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget, which is going to be opening on Netflix on December 8th. So getting Tim here to chat about all things stop motion is an absolute pleasure. We talk about things like imposter syndrome, how he got started in the industry, thinking about animators as actors, communicating effectively with different directors, teaching skills to others, and most importantly, just having a conversation about being thankful for the creative spaces we find ourselves in. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here is Tim Allen. So Tim, thanks so much for joining. As I uh, as I look over your whole filmography, it's just fascinating to me, um, and I've heard you talk about this in interviews, in interviews before, but just the fact that like stop motion still very actively plays a role in our lives. Um, <laughs> and I guess what I'm curious about for you is like, when you were a kid, when you were, when you were kicking things off, like how did you initially get introduced to the medium of stop motion animation? Oh, wow. God. Well, well thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, how did I, uh, when did I, I think the first thing I remember that um, was stop motion um because of course i had disney films and the other thing disney would have been a big thing that would have been on the tv a lot when i was younger um stop motion animation with with models with puppets would be this really obscure thing called chorlton and the wheelies which was these um you'd have to look this one up on youtube but chorlton and the wheelies they were little um characters with wheels that would just move around on a tabletop with a a witch with a completely over the top Welsh accent it was barking mad I, if um and frankly if you look at it today it looks rather drug induced but um that's my first memory of stop motion and then it would be things like wind in the willows the stop motion feature film made by Cosgrove Hall in the 80s which and I'd watch the that was when off into a spin off a load of tv series I, i'd come home from school watching that and that would lead forward into um uh, well, Postman Pat, that was another, I don't know if that came to the States, that was huge in the UK, um, a, t- a children's television show, and Fireman Sam. And then when I was becoming an art student, it was Nightmare Before Christmas became huge. So in terms of the medium that I do now, stop motion animation, those would be the, the main influential ones. Oh, and Morph. No, really early memory of mine is is Morph, Ardman Animations, 
um, on a British arts and crafts programme called Tony Hart's Art Club. And Morph is just a little ball of plasticine on a tabletop who um, makes, um, well, he doesn't really talk in a legible voice, but um, the, these are all the really nostalgic memories to me. So, um, some of them will have come to America and some of them won't. But I think that's that's half the fun of like children's television is I love the fact that you described it as uh, reviewing it now. It seems fairly drug induced, which is I think that's the nice thing about children's programming, uh, especially on that sort of like lower budget stop motion scale, is that you've got these people who are like, all right, we need to entertain kids. Our budget is this much. Let's take some risks and see what sticks. And I always feel like that's the reason that those are the ones that stay with us. And I think back then it was a bit more maverick as well in terms of what would be censored or regulated. Um, and these things were made by a much smaller team of people, often just a, a, a few people in a shed at the back of the garden, pretty much um, doing things in a very spontaneous, uncontrolled way. Um, and I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but now that I am a, you know, a, a long time professional stop motion animator, one of the biggest joys that I have is to, I have worked with the director of Wind in the Willows, uh, animating for him. I've worked with um, animators who did Children in the Wheelies and Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, and the director of Postman Pat, actually, was also the director of the Wind in the Willows. So when I've done the reincarnation of Postman Pat and Fireman Sam years later, and then Tim Burton films years later, to work with the guys that did those original things that inspired me i'm like the young kid who's like oh my god that thing that i watched as a child and um you, you actually did it and i want to hear all these stories about what it was like to work on and how bad health and safety was back in those days or how much free reign they had and the bizarre thing is now i've been um doing this for over 20 years and um I'm getting kids coming up to me and things that I worked on when I started, um, they were three, four, five years old when they watched them. So they have the same reaction about stuff that I've worked on that I had looking at Children in the Wheelies, looking at Nightmare Before Christmas, looking at the Wind of the Willows. So I really get that. It's um, It's a bit of a circle of life thing. Absolutely. And I before we get too far into your career, I'm curious about, you know, in your other interviews, you've talked about the fact that like you knew pretty early on that you wanted to do something arts related, but you weren't 100 percent sure that you wanted to go into stop motion. Uh, and I'm wondering how you kind of came to that discovery that, um, you know, stop motion was the the place for you, like to, to use you know, stop motion is an interesting medium because like not only do you have to have like an aesthetic understanding, you have to have like uh, an Olympic grade version of your own patience to be able to, to work at that speed. So I'm just curious how you eventually discovered to yourself that like that was the medium that you wanted to work in because you went to college for it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, as a young kid watching these programs, it never occurred to me this was something I could do as a job even though evidently there must be people, there's names on the credits, there must be people making these TV programs. I didn't occur to me. Even when I um, I left school, and to be clear, in, in England school, you're 16 when you finish school. Um, and then you go to college 16 to 18 and universities 18 onwards um, in, in, in the English system. But um, leaving school, we knew enough that I wasn't going to generalize. I was going to focus on art. 
Um, Because I'd been drawing um, and doing cartoons as a kid nonstop. I couldn't, you couldn't stop me drawing characters and um, little interactions. Um, So we knew art, but realistically, I was absolutely lost as to where that was going. I was, I was, yeah, definitely directionless. And, you know, at um, 16 to 18, I did did a two year course in general art and design. It was um, a mix of fine art, fashion, graphics 3d 3d back then by the way was not computers it was three-dimensional space and objects um so a bit of sculpture a bit of architecture a bit of um um, spatial design um that was the bit that drew me so i was more drawn to the three-dimensional space but i was we were looking for universities and i I was i was clueless i really didn't know where this was going i was doing the briefs the projects because the tutors gave it to me as a project but i wasn't self-motivated or focused as into this is what i want to do this is what i'm curious in um so it was looking like i was heading down the route of model making i, I liked making things with my hands uh, maybe product design and i was looking at model making courses at university nothing had captured me nothing i was passionate about and i was in the waiting room at um um, a university and for a model making course um, and someone poked their head around the door and so I'll never forget they said is anyone here to see the animation course and I went oh really you can do that oh yes yes I'll go and I looked around the course and it was all drawn it was 2D, 2D animation not stop motion but um, it was enough to make me think wow oh my god this is for me. And if the fact that a couple of years before that, I'd been, I'd loved Nightmare Before Christmas. I got the behind the scenes book um, with all the people crawling on the sets, drilling holes in the floor, manipulating the puppets, you know, holding the puppets in their hands. The idea of animation with models, it was this, wow, aha, I found it. Um, and I think I was very lucky to be 18 years old Um and finding something where I went, wow, that's for me. That's what I have to do. It gave me a real drive, complete clarity. Um, so that was the, the start of the, okay, how do I do this? It's I, it, one of the themes that pops up on this podcast a lot. And just in general conversation with people is the fact that like, when you when you're directionless, obviously you're so anxious about making the right decision forward. Mm -hmm. And then if you just kind of get to that moment where you're like, I'm going to open myself up to the universe and sort of see what happens. uh, 90% of the time you find yourself in these like weird avenues you never thought you'd get into. Uh, And I, I think about that quite often, just in the sense that like, I, you know, I'm currently broadcasting to you from my office, uh, you know, at the college I teach at. And the reason I'm here is because I sold graphic novels to somebody one day and happened to keep in touch with them, (laughs) you know, like the, you never know how these different opportunities are going to present themselves. So like, I just love the fact that you're like, I don't know what I want to do. Does anybody want to take the animation course? Uh, Okay. My future has been set in stone now. Yeah, and I think I was very lucky at 18 to find that, but um, I, I think there's a lot of um, a sense of you know, I'm gonna, anxiety or dissatisfaction in oneself that I should know what I want to do, shouldn't I? Uh, shouldn't I find my thing? Shouldn't I find my calling? And, and people feeling quite incomplete and even worried about it until they've found that. Um, and, and frankly, I think you go through life repeatedly 
changing direction and as much of the things that happen to you are a bit of a right time right place or even wrong time wrong place um so the fact that we find our goal and then determinedly steer ourselves towards it knowing exactly what our intention is i think there there's very few people like that um and even that could be a bit obsessive so i think we're kind of often wandering meandering through life and a few things fall into place and we think oh yeah i'll do more of that or or the opposite we have an experience that we hated so much we think anything but that and change direction so yeah the, the i th- i think um the idea that people know what they they're doing is um very very rare much of the time i think we're figuring it out and making it up as we go along and the discovery of it is half the fun. One one thing I was also curious about was just uh, you know, like your your sort of family dynamic, right? You have uh what is it, Samantha and Chris are your are your siblings and like uh what was were they did they have direction? I mean, your sister became a pro wrestler. So I'm curious about like mm-hmm. as you're sort of figuring it out, uh, you know, where where were they in these procedures? Like were you leading the way or were you just sort of like the lost puppy? <laughs> well, I was the eldest. So I'm two years older than my brother. And I'm nearly 12 years old, my brother Chris, and I'm nearly, nearly 12 years older than my sister Sam. So um, Samantha was her, her original acting stage name, because just to differentiate that Sam, Samantha is a woman because Sam Allen could be a man. So when she was originally looking to get into acting, it was it was Samantha. Um, so anyway, my brother's two years younger. He has had a much more straightforward path, um, which he would uh, readily admit himself. He was all like I was obsessive into drawing and creating characters. He was absolutely focused on on numbers and maths. And um, he went off to do mathematics and uh, further mathematics <laughs> and um, got headhunted after uni. And he's been an actuary, um, actuaries figure out pension plans for large corporations um he's been with doing that with the same company ever since he graduated so he's had a very linear different path to me and my sister who have much more um um meandered i suppose because sam started off going to drive she was always on stage from when she was six years sorry four four years old i think her earliest stuff and then went off to the drama school in the uh, after school um, as a young teenager went off to performing arts school at university um, graduated at 21 and was then doing the thing of trying to become an actor singer dancer working in holiday parks um, originally the big dream for her was to be on the west end in london um, uh, or um, in theater or maybe work on a cruise ship that was pretty good money so she thought when she was 21 22 and she ended up working in holiday parks doing lots of singing and acting and um so it's like more singing and dancing in front of holiday makers had a bad experience thought i've got to get out of here moved back in with me was looking for acting gigs one of the acting gigs offered to her happened to be a part as a, a an extra in a film about wrestling she did some wrestling classes for ready to get ready for the this role next thing you know she's after after two weeks of wrestling classes she says to me tim i've been thinking about this for a long time i'm not going to follow acting and singing anymore i'm going to 
keep training as a wrestler and train to be a professional wrestler. Um, and I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> but, it, but it shows you, you start off with certain ambitions. Maybe those ambitions, they're not working out or they're not for you. And that's fine. And along the way, you find other things that you're good at and other things that you enjoy. And I think that's a never-ending path. Um, and nine years later, she is still a professional wrestler. She was hired by WWE for five years. Um, the show she was on got cancelled, so she was released by them. And she that's just over a year ago. She's now been a freelance wrestler all around Europe. She's currently... She won another championship this weekend. So she's currently champion at five different companies. And I've got a lovely photo from her wedding where she, at the time she was a four-time champion. She's there in her her um, wedding gown holding her four championship belts. Um, so there's a contrast. But again, it, it just shows how life keeps going in different directions. And I don't think that will ever stop. Um I don't know if I could have predicted that I'd be still animating. Well, I, I went to uni in 1995. Um, I've now, oh, I told you I had an anniversary. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> tomorrow is going to be 24 years since I got my first paid professional animation job. So I'm about to hit 24 years as a professional animator. Could I have predicted that when I went to university the same year that Toy Story came out and everyone was saying that CGI was going to take over? Um, maybe not. Um, and will I be animating in 20 years? Who, who knows what AI will do? Who knows? It will keep on moving. It will keep on changing direction, I'm sure. Absolutely. I get a kick out of the fact. So as I was doing my research, I was you know, obviously able to find uh, Sam and, and uh, whatever, but Chris kept... Uh, Chris. Yeah, I I couldn't I couldn't break his story. So the fact that he's an actuary, and I just this analogy I find really interesting. But the idea that like your career, uh, you know, animation comes from the Latin term anima, breathing life into things, soul, and then actuaries go through and review tables of uh, the statistics about how you can die in different ways is such an interesting stark contrast. Uh, yeah. th that's just fascinating with the one within one fam family dynamic. Um, hey, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that I think we all have in common. Um, and that is working ethic. Um, when we were all youngish, um, mum had us out going to do a paper round to earn our own pocket money, and then jobs at the local sports centre. So the idea of trying to be there on time and to be a very aware of what they're asking us to do in the job and trying to deliver what we're being asked to do. That was, you know, that was really put into all of us, as well as getting engaged with the community, getting involved. Uh, my mum really instilled that in all of us. So despite the differences, we are we do have a an ethic of wanting to do a good job and wanting satisfaction from the job and being very aware of other people's needs. So there's there's a very common thread with us, despite what seems like very divergent careers. No, there's definitely there's definitely that clear through line of the Allen family, because I think doesn't your is your mom into marathon running as well? Like there's <laughs> just such a fascinating, uh, I don't know, just like nose to the grindstone kind of just emphasis in your family that I think is pretty cool that that obviously stretches itself into so many different directions. Well, in terms of my mom setting the example, yes, this year she did her 30th London marathon and probably last. Hey. 
to me, that's uh, 30. I, I've done zero. So, uh, you know, she's got 30 more than me at this point. Um, so I could be getting the anniversaries wrong. Uh, but I, I but I do want to talk about your, uh, you know, your break, your breakout into the industry. So I've heard you talk about the fact that you, you know, uh, similar to most people, you you go through college, you uh, you have these skill sets, you're going from one one place to the other you said you'd you'd gone to every single and stop motion studio in the uk and we're like hey will you hire me and uh they're all like well not yet we need to see these types of skill sets and i know one of your first gigs was you ended up working for ardman studios the creators of morph uh to do a rice krispies commercial you were working in like their uh you were making mouths i believe for uh yeah yeah it was um um I pop when I was going everywhere. I, I'd, I'd phone a company up, send my VHS showreel, phone them up again, try to arrange to go in with my portfolio, which was an excuse to meet them in person and show them a bit more of my model making work. Uh, it was a bit of a three pronged attack for introducing myself to a company. And when I went to um, to Ardman Animations, I popped in and um, to show my portfolio. It just happened they could do with an extra pair of hands to get a fairly mundane task done. Uh, it was pressing plasticine into molds. You put the plasticine out and you got the shape of the, the mouths for um, the characters called Snap, Crackle and Pop, the characters on the, the box of Rice Krispies, um, Kellogg's cornflakes. Um, I painted the teeth white, put a little tongue in the mouth. I was only there for four days. I wouldn't have been paid very much. Um, and I didn't work at Hardman again for about eight years, as it turned out. But at least it gave me several days in a studio seeing how, well, you're just soaking up the atmosphere of how a studio works, really. Um, and uh, if anything, I think they were just being quite nice, giving me a, a chance to, it was paid, but it might as well have been work experience, really. The, the irony is... Um, I was actually back in that very same room today because I'm doing some um, promotion for the new Chicken Run film. And uh, it happens to be in the same room that I did that gig for the, for the four days. And Enti, um, the guy that gave me that opportunity, he's still there now running the model making department. So um, it's quite amusing working with him as one of the lead animators these days when he's the guy that gave me my first super junior trainee assistant model maker gig um it was it was a start and it was bitty but it was it was something and i was desperate for anything at that point awesome and then so what is this 24 year uh celebration what uh what have what are we now celebrating 24 years of right the bit that i count from is because people say when did you start animating and you could say well i did it at home or i did it at university that's when I got my first paid job as an animator because uh, the, um, the the Rice Krispies thing was making replacement mouths ready for someone else to animate. So it's a bit like um, if you think of me as the actor on a movie, it's my first um, animation acting role as opposed to just being on a movie set doing something. Um, so, yeah, my, my first show was El Nombre. It was for the BBC. It's a very low-budget kids' education show. Um, so that's the thing where I really got to animate for a living, um, I would say. And things up and down, bit by bit, got going from there. 
And that was like a, a 10 month position. I mean, it was a pretty lengthy. Mm, mm. Something Which like that. Yeah, yeah, 10 months. I mean, I had to work really fast. I mean, we're animators are also, there's kind of a factory worker aspect to what we do. We've got to churn out, and I know this sounds hilarious, 24 seconds a day was what I had to do on El Nombre. That is a lot in animation terms. So for those that aren't a fay with animation, um, uh, really, really low budget kid series, we might do 18 seconds a day. Um, Fireman Sam was 10 seconds a day. Sean the Sheep is six seconds a day. Um, uh, Pinocchio is about one and a half seconds a day for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. So 24 seconds a day, you're working incredibly fast trying to crank as many much footage out as you can do. So the emphasis was not on quality. It was about getting it done. And I wasn't fast enough. Um, but um, you're just doing it, doing it, doing it all day. So practice, practice, practice. Um, and because they weren't expecting much in the way of high quality, so long as it basically told the story and did what it needed to, it didn't need to look great at all. Um, but by you're just doing hand gesture after hand gesture, head nod after head nod as the character talks. So you're repeat, 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 repeat. So you are, and you you can make as many mistakes as you want because unless it's absolutely unusable, it's going to be in the show. Um, so I, I think I worked out in two and a half months of doing El Nombre, I'd done as many hours animating as three years at university. And that gives you a sense of by doing it every day, you're getting the practice hours in. We, we've heard about the 10,000 hours makes a master. Now, I was not that, but um, I was starting to get the hours in. That's awesome. And when um, I want to come back to this idea about uh, animator as actor in a little bit. But I guess the one thing I'm curious about is like whenever you start any new position, there's like that uh, imposter syndrome is just like very real. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, even as I'm talking to you right now, I'm like, did I teach today or did I just pretend I was teaching? I can't tell. Um, yeah, yeah. But I'm curious about for you, like how how far into your career were you before you really felt like your skill set was something you were you were confident in? Mm, I I don't think there's a moment. There there will be moments where you felt some validation from others, or you felt, hey, I managed to pull that off. There, there's moments of that. Oh, goodness, I would say even 10 years into my career, I still really felt, even 15 years into my career, I felt that I was still having to prove myself in a, a different way. Because just because you get good at one thing, unless you're doing that same thing all the time, and you want to expand your skill base, you're going to have to start doing things that you're less familiar with. Um, and, and by the way, I don't want to be someone that gets good at something and then just keeps doing that because, um, yes, I might feel comfortable doing it, but I also think that's how you stagnate creatively uh, or stagnate in any practice if you're just doing stuff you know how to do with your eyes closed. Um, so I, I feel... I. I, I, I'm deviating a bit from your question, but I don't think there's necessarily an end point where you know how to do everything or you feel you're proven. Um, even even earlier this year, I was doing a, a dog um, run and um, for Ardman for a cider commercial. 
And Will, the director, asked me, he didn't want the dog to sprint. He didn't want it to trot. He wanted it to do a canter. I didn't know what a canter was. It's uh, between a jog and between a sprint, something with a four-legged animal. So and I didn't have time to practice. So we quickly looked online to go, okay, what's a trot? What's a sprint? What's a canter? What's a a walk with a four-legged animal? Uh, Okay, right. That's what it looks like, is it? And I just literally... (laughs) had a video to kind of copy frame by frame. So there's no moment where you know how to do everything. So you're always going, you're always coming into it with an aspect of, huh, well, I've done similar things to that, but I'm not really sure how that works. I may not have any time to do any research. So there's going to have to be a little bit of a, well, let's get in there and give it a go. And we'll We'll talk and we'll analyze as we go and make adjustments as necessary. So what in terms of imposter syndrome, um, I think the big difference is I'm much less anxious about people realizing that I don't know what I'm doing or people thinking I'm really good at what I'm doing. And I know that uh, I know my limitations and uh, I'm terrified other people will realize them. I'm now much more accepting of the fact that um, I don't and will never know everything but I'm quite happy to discuss different ways we could approach it um, and hear what they what the director wants, hear other people's ideas, and we'll go with what we think is the best way forward. And if it isn't quite working out the way we hoped it would, we have a conversation as early as possible and make adjustments. So I'm, I'm, I, it's very different from uh, the imposter syndrome of... Uh, I, I I feel that I'm a I feel that I'm a fraud, or I feel other people will realise that I'm a fraud, and that I'm just make I'm winging it. I, I'm going to tell you that I'm winging it. I'm much more open about that, um, and um, yeah, because you never you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to know everything. Um, all you can do is try and um, um, you know what? I had a wonderful word, another well, wonderful way for describing confidence. Confidence is not knowing what you're doing although that really helps confidence um is not pretending you know what you're doing uh, or this inbuilt innate skill confidence is is saying i've got this or leave it with me i'll handle it um and it doesn't have to be that you're um putting the wool over people's eyes it's just leave it with me i'll figure it out 99% of it is just being willing to say, I can problem solve this and yeah. and kind of go yeah. from there. I do get a kick out of the fact that, uh, you know, I'm talking to an animator who's worked with some of the greatest directors of all time and, uh, you know, was part of a performance that won an Academy Award who's like, well, <laughs> uh, I'm still just faking it, but I think I'm faking it better than I did 24 <laughs> years ago. Um I'm also I'm more just... relaxed about. I'm, I'm I'm more relaxed and open about it, and um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a much happier place to be. That's awesome. So you know, I I think um, I, I guess I'm gonna I want to come back to this actor as or sorry animator as actor thing because I think it's something mm. that we don't really consider a lot. Um, you know, just as we we consume media, like one of my one of the things that I find fascinating about stop motion right now is that we're in a time where 
consumption of media is at an all-time high. Okay, mm. I, I I watched that thing. I watched that thing. It was okay. I watched the next thing. You're just cramming things into your brain. You're not really processing in it anything into it. But we're also at a time where like all these big directors are funding these films that are literally one frame at a time as opposed to, can I get another take? Can I get another take? Can I get another take? And as we fail to let ourselves just think about the media that we're consuming, it also makes us not necessarily think about the way in which this media is made um, and that the people that are animating these things truly are some of the greatest actors in the in the world. I mean, we talk about the nine old men at Disney are arguably like mm. some of the most mm. important uh, actors, you know, in history. And I'm curious about like in your stop motion journey, when did you really start to to recognize yourself as an actor? Um, and, you know, as an animator, how are you? Uh, you know, utilizing these acting principles because clearly there's performance in your family, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and I and I um did the odd pantomime uh, when I was a teenager as well. So I guess there was some um um don't say exhibitionist because I actually felt very very huge stage fright doing it. So I certainly wasn't someone that was wanting the spotlight or the attention, which is um which is suited very nicely now because an animator is the actor behind the puppet. Um, so we, we, we're like the, the puppeteer that you don't actually see. You just see the, the puppet coming alive. Um, and to be clear, for those that aren't quite sure what a stop motion animator is, I don't make the puppets or the sets or do the lighting. I'm the guy that moves the puppet, um, adjusts his eye, adjusts the eyes, adjusts the hand position, um, opens the mouth, um, and then takes a photograph. And I do that maybe... 24 times to give you a second's worth of footage so it's very much acting but on a a time delay it's not like you're picking up kermit the frog and moving him around to the the voice um like i say i might get two seconds in a day so you're quite detached from the the live performance if you will that we watch in the movie and it goes by man if you if you blink you're going to miss two hours of my work so um, caveat, no, no blinking while, when you're watching my films. But um, um, yeah, it's um, when did I first realise that I was an actor? I, I was always interested in the audience from a young, even from when I was a student, I was very aware of the audience's response. More to humour when I was a student. Is this funny? Um, have I given enough delay before I then give the gag, the punchline. Um, so how am I delivering it is, is also very conscious of how are people receiving it. Um, so that's probably the, the the earliest part of me seeing this as a performance, as a story that's unfolding, or a joke that's being told, and what's the best way to tell a joke. Um, and then I, I was getting more into subtlety as I was doing children's series, but you haven't got the time to get too much into it. I think the first time I really felt I was getting deeper into performance was when I was doing Corpse Bride um, for Tim Burton. And I landed on my feet that I, I fell into some shots with, with Barkis, who was voiced by Richard E. Grant, who is this, oh goodness, he's a psychopathic um, serial real killer uh, who's pretending he's um, English aristocracy, but he doesn't actually have a penny. So he's having to manipulate um, wealthy 
parents into letting him marry their daughter so he can murder her and then steal all their money. Um, so I've got this interesting psychopathic character here who's very manipulative, very aware of what he's doing. And I had to think of him in terms of, I broke it down back then into conscious and subconscious. There's what he's saying and what his intention is. And then there's what he's feeling underneath. Like he might be feeling superior and confident that he knows his charm is going to win them over. Whereas later on in the film where things start falling apart for him, He's trying to act like he's got it all together and trying to be demanding. But underneath, there's this element of panic and I don't have any time. So there's what, you, what you're thinking and deeper down what you're feeling on the subconscious level. I think that's when I started to feel more that I was getting into the psychology of um, how a person behaves and then how I deliver that through the puppet. And then I, then there's the added layer of you have to then make sure that your performance and your interpretation is in line with what Tim Burton and Mike Johnson are expecting, uh, you yeah. know, as they're doing that. And I'm, I'm curious, like how, obviously this movie was almost 20 years ago at this point, like how were, how were those ideas, emotions, goals communicated to you? And then you're just, you're set there just to accomplish the daily or the, you know, the, the thing that you need to make to then get back to them where they say, yeah, good job. Uh, and to your mm -hmm. point, if you blink, you miss two hours worth of work. So I'm curious about like how, as you're channeling those performance goals through and then breaking them down into, uh, you know, okay, I need to accomplish this shot in four days, and it's gonna, uh, it's gonna require this many frames and this camera movements happening. How did all of those things start to line up in your head? Yeah, well, if, if you think that um, it's going to take me a whole ten-hour day to about to do about one and a half or two seconds worth of work, I need to get a very clear description and feeling from the director or directors on what they want and what they're after so um for example um tim burton is much more about the general mood and ambience of that moment in the in the movie in the story whereas mike johnson would give me um, much more specific details about um the characters uh not just feeling but but, but feelings details um hand gestures yeah, details with them it might it might be if there's going to be a squint in the eye or a clenching of the fingers or um uh followed by a release of rage and mike would get more into those details whereas tim would be more um that shot generally within the bigger picture of the, the film um so um I take on board both of those things, for example, and um, work out how I could go into even more detail because I'm doing this frame by frame. So I'm always going to be more detailed than what they're giving me. They're giving me an overview, really, with a few specifics they may want. Um, and I've got to really feel it out. And uh, um, especially back on Corpse, I would really, in slow motion, almost repeat and repeat with my body what the character's doing so I could feel all the muscles clench as um, the character then tensed up to release um, their, their rage or whatever the release might be. And I'd be analysing 
exactly when one of my eyes was squinting more than the other or I'd raise one of my elbows more than the other um, before. Um, when did my eyes open and my mouth pop open as my hands ex popped open with um, expression? Um, so I would I would be repeating and repeating, and repeating it. And I can tell you now doing um, to try and feel what the character's feeling and and put that into the puppet in a more visceral way. And I remember doing some stuff with Barkus when he was really almost hyperventilating in panic later on because he he needs to get out of there and things are going wrong. So I'm 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 acting out this hyperventilating thing and obviously flooding my body with too much oxygen in the process. And so I, I was actually really wired at the end of the day because I had been I'd been living out in my body what I need to project through the puppet's body. So that was my way of trying to. Um, um be who they were and then project it through the puppets um especially back then I, I i don't think now with my experience i don't go quite into that um level uh of uh being the puppet but um yeah that that was my method at the time definitely i i had to, i had to feel what the puppet's feeling uh, for the listeners at home, I just got a a beautiful uh, just pantomime rendition of all of the hand placements and the 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 clenching of every muscle and whatnot. And it's just really interesting to because it's something that we don't think about. It's usually like, oh, the animator just goes and moves the puppet and takes a picture. And mm -hmm. that's not the case at all. I mean, like, um, as especially as technology is changing and the expectations of what we want from stop motion are so much more, uh, every nuance of the performance is, is just held accountable in a way that it never used to be. It, the expectations are higher, yeah. And I can tell you another thing. Um, every director is different and they're not all as good at expressing what they want or communicating details as each other. So me being able to repeat back to the director, do you mean like this? And if I can kind of do it with my own body and radiate it to them, I'm kind of showing them with my own body. Do you mean the character moves and feels like that? So they've not just got the words back and forth. They've also got me acting it out in front of them and they can say that's a bit too much or a bit too little. Or So it, it's actually just communication between two people. They're telling me what they're after. I'm trying to show, say to them, have I, have I, is this the sort of thing you're looking for? So it's a, it's a me performing it um, with my hands and my face scrunching up um, is is also a communication device with the director, so that they feel re as comfortable as possible that I've got what they want. Um, yeah. I, I, I've at least understood what they want. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like in the sense that you're. <laughs> All right, here's my performance. That's great. Now do it at 24 frames per second with that action figure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a different part of the art, which I think you need to do a lot of hours of stop motion or other animation to um, uh, get into. That, that gets a bit more technical. But uh, um, yes, yes. I, like I say, there's a, there's a time delay between just doing it and then trying to do it microscopically. <laughs> Um, um, frame by frame. Awesome. And I, I guess um, I'm trying to figure out, I got kind of two lines of questioning I'm going back and forth on, but I'm curious specifically about your relationship with different directors and the way in which those processes change. Um, Cause it's interesting to me, like in the sense that, uh, you know, if we look at Tim Burton as an example, um, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas is not directed by Tim Burton. He produces it. It's directed by Henry Selleck, uh, who 
for the record, graduated from Syracuse University, uh, just FYI. Uh, and then he, um, you know, he works on Corpse Bride with Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson is uh, the director of one of my favorite animated pieces, which is the Primus video for Devil Went Down to Georgia. And then he, you know, works on Corpse Bride and you have that sort of relationship. And then Tim Burton ends up directing in its entirety uh, Frankenweenie, for which you worked on two of those three pieces, right? Um, yeah, well, Frank and Winnie too had Trey Thomas as the animation director, who oh. was on who he was on Nightmare Animating Sally, uh, predominantly, and he did um, predominantly he did Bone Jangles and Corpse Bride. So Trey had done two films with with Tim as one of the lead animators. Um, so Trey was the natural fit to be the animation director, in the same way that Henry Selick was on Nightmare and Mike Johnson was on Corpse. It was Trey on um, on Frank and Winnie. Awesome. So, yes, Tim, Tim is like the um, overview director of the whole film, and he's got a guy who's there um, uh, with every detail uh, on every day, uh, managing us um, in the studio. The animation well, director. And I'm, it was it similar with Wes Anderson and Isle of Dogs? Was was Wes? Did he have an animation director under that, or was were the directions coming directly from Wes? Um, both. <laughs> You've got. Um, uh, an animation director. You've got Mark Gustafsson, who is the animation director on Fantastic Mr. Fox, and he was also the co-director with um, Guillermo del Toro on Pinocchio, uh, Mark Gustafsson. And you've got Mark Waring on Isle of Dogs, who's the animation director. Now, um, on both occasions with Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, the, art, the animation director is dealing with the animators every single day. They're like our 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 team leader and they're our main point of conversation to present things to Wes. But Wes is absolutely hands-on. Um, he he conducts most everything by email, but he, I believe he has about five or seven laptops in his um, office whereby he's talking to all the different departments back and forth all day. So it's almost like um, the animation director is my conduit to discuss um, what ideas we present to Wes and take Wes's feedback and then I act on that. They're really helping me communicate with Wes, but believe me, Wes is on every single detail and, and Wes is absolutely a details guy. So it's all about having a whole list of bullet points of all the details Wes wants, when he wants them and making sure that I, I hit them. So it's, it's a completely different way of working, working for Wes Anderson for say than say Tim Burton. Yeah. So let's, uh, I, I want to, I, I guess I'm just trying to set this up a little bit. So like we've got, uh, you know, um, I, I, I did not realize that Mark uh, had been the one who worked with for Isle of Dog and for uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and for Pinocchio. So that through line is making sense. Ah, I know um, two different marks. You've got the Mark Gustafson, who is um, animation director on Fox and he's um, director on co-director on Pinocchio. But just to really confuse you, um, Mark Waring was animation supervisor on Fox and on Frank and Weenie and animation director on Ida Dog. So um, we, we do go around and bump into the same people on different things. Yeah. And, and what I'm learning is that I need to make sure that I ver uh, verify the marks in the animation industry because my notes are wrong. Um, but <laughs> so let, let's just talk about this for a second in the sense that you've got uh, I really appreciate your anecdotes about uh, kind of when working on Corpse Bride and 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 um, expressing here's the performance that I'm I'm trying to give with these puppets and then getting the thumbs up going and doing um, doing that. Um, and from what I understand, working on Pinocchio uh 
similar in the sense that there's a lot more dialogue about here's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I heard one interview where you talked about, oh, that's what you, okay, in order to accomplish that, I need a little bit more budget time. I need, you know, X number more frames to be able to accomplish that sort of thing. And uh, you're also uh, sort of thinking like a cinematographer in that film a little bit too, where mm-hmm. you're you're choosing those things. Working for Wes Anderson, I guess I want to start with that one though where there's obviously a very specific aesthetic. You can watch any Wes Anderson movie silent and you instantly know it's a Wes Anderson movie. Um, and uh, I've seen shots where, uh, you know, you say Wes is communicating with you via email. As he's saying, I want this, this, and this, is he also sending you video, like lobs, you know, live action videos of like, this is what mm. I'm expecting or is everything communicated via text? Yeah, yeah. Um, for the audience, a, a live action video is a, uh, a term we use where we film ourselves to use as reference. And it was very, very useful on Fantastic Mr. Fox, where Wes Anderson would film himself for every single shot to give us a very clear um, view of here's how he wants the movement to be, um, which you can imagine in terms of the director and the animator communicating, that gives you a very clear reference. Um, and sometimes I can film it sort of myself, uh, which with Guillermo del Toro, I'd film myself to send to Guillermo and he could then bounce back off that, what he did or didn't like. So again, it's a useful, it's just about getting a clear understanding between the two of us about what they're after. Um, I'm drifting away from your question. You're asking about um, Wes and details and labs, weren't you? And just, um, and how they're communicated to you in general and how you respond to those things. Like, uh... yeah, they're not really there to just copy frame by frame. And the cool thing with um, doing a lab is that you can film yourself and try out the performance four or five times in just a few minutes. And of course, the animation, we've already established how slow it is to do. So it's a quick way of trying out ideas. And there'll be certain things that you spontaneously do when you try out a performance um, that you go, oh, oh, I didn't expect that. But that's quite useful. What do you think of that? And the director might say, we'll use the first bit from your second lav, and then we'll use the end bit from your third lav. Um, so it's like having a couple of takes that can um, inspire um, conversation ideas for how you move forward. It's never there to copy, um, just a quick way of trying ideas out. Um, and some directors prefer them more than others. So it, different directors have got different ways of working. Um, I guess the big thing is for me, I've got to adapt to how what's the director's comfort zone for communication and i've got to try and fit in with that because they've got to talk to a whole bunch of different animators it could be 20 different animators so we've all got to accommodate what the director wants um but yeah for, for wes he on fox anyway he really liked to film himself for everything or, or he'd often send me a photograph of um, his hand holding a cup or holding a dish so I could see what kind of hand shape he wants for how to hold it. He'd be as he'd be as specific as um, how he wants a glass held um, in the hand. So I, I'm there to give Wes exactly what he's looking for, and he's normally very exact in what he is after. I love the fact that there is a Wes Anderson movie out there that is literally Wes Anderson filming uh, scenes from his stop motion movies as himself. Yes, that, yes. That, I, I want to see that cut. 
Yeah, I want to that'll that'll make it to YouTube at some point. Um, So you've like in in I'm just using Isles of Dogs as an example, because I, I think there's some interesting stuff that comes up. But you're a you're a murderer. Uh, You you killed somebody with wasabi poison uh, in that in that oh, movie, yes. if, if I recall. It's uh, not the first death scene I've done. Did I do the bit where he I didn't do the shot where he dies, but I did do the shot where the chef puts the poison wasabi into the sushi. Yes, you did. Um, and, and it's a be- it's a beautiful sequence. I was just I was watching it today for for listeners at home. Um, there's a uh, a sequence where you have a, a sushi a sushi chef uh, and you're seeing a lot of the imagery from a first person perspective. And then it cuts to, I believe, the part that you were working on, Tim, where you're hmm. seeing the person uh prepare it for, uh, as a little to-go container, essentially, yes. to uh, wrapped in a bag very beautifully. And, um, you know, that scene in particular is, like, even even when you look at the the Blu-ray, like, and you look at the special feature, like, they take a picture of you, like, working on that shot as, like, the uh, the imagery for it. But I'm, I'm curious about, for, like, sequences like that that are just so particular, um, very lengthy, I mean, is the, is the whole shot 10 seconds 15 seconds like it's the one with the one with the sushi chef packing the sushi into a box and into a bag 16 seconds i did it in four days so four seconds a day if you watch that video of me animating it you'll see my t-shirt changes four times i know the first person one which wasn't me that was andy biddle and then it was finished by tony farquhar smith they took about i'm gonna say two and a half months to animate that the bit where you see the sushi being chopped up and that was about two two and a half months plus a load of practices as well um so that that that's a different kind of marathon i've done some epic long shots before but that that's a different kind of commitment okay so 16 seconds four days four t-shirts i guess what i'm curious about is as you're as you're <laughs> wearing working... t-shirt every day that's that's what we clarified here yes, yes. We're I, very... I come in fresh guys yeah, you're very you're very well socialized for an animator. Uh, good job, Tim. Uh, but I guess what I'm curious about is um, as as you're working on those scenes. So for anybody who hasn't seen Isle of Dog, it's it's very much a scene that is um, a very memorable shot within the film. And I guess what I'm curious about is like as you are entrusted with these sequences, do you know their significance? Like obviously culturally, you'll never know that. But in the in the grand scheme of the narrative of the film how aware are you of how important this particular shot is going to be uh, mm. when you're working on it for four days to, to wrap up sushi in a bag? Yeah, I I think at that stage with that one, um, I, I was aware this is a kind of iconic looking Wes Anderson shot. Um, uh, and But I, I, I really took it in my stride, even the fact that I was doing a time-lapse where I was animating myself at the same time as animating the puppet, I, I it was almost like another day at the office on that. But I was aware uh, this is a really cool, interesting, and I vintage Wes shot. I, th- I think ones where I was aware I was doing something really big and special would be Cor- Corpse Bride. I did the wedding scene where Barkis is giving a speech at the wedding table. Everyone is sitting along the table looking half asleep and, and absolutely uninterested and bored. And the camera just slowly um, tracks along the table towards Barkas as he gives his speech. That was a 30-second shot. 
It's the second longest shot in the film. It's got lots of acting all the way through it. And I wasn't really meant to make a mistake and go back and redo anything. And I was aware, okay, if this is a 30 second shot, all focused on the lead bad guy, um, that's going to be a fairly major moment in the film. And I really felt the responsibility and the, the trust on my shoulders. Um, I, I, I took it as a challenge, but I was aware this is a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think nowadays I'd be much more relaxed about something like that. Um, but back then when I was only 28 and it was my first big feature film, uh, it was an honor to be given something like that, but you're also feeling the responsibility on your shoulders. That's awesome. And let's, uh, I, w- I wish I had more questions about Frank and weenie. Uh, Tim is wearing a Frank and weenie crew <laughs> hoodie right now. And I feel like that to me is one of his, uh, just one of the most underappreciated, uh, yeah. stop motion films in general. But I, I, well, let's Disney talk about Frank. Like and... Black and white. What was that? Disney don't like black and white. Yeah, yeah it's so strange. <laughs> so yeah, so if you haven't seen it, uh, Tim Burton made uh, his original one of his original films was Frank and Weenie about this dog coming back to life, and uh, he makes a stop motion film of it that he directs, um, or at least has directing credit for it. There's another Mark that's involved, right? No. You gave me the Mark name. Mark Waring was the animation supervisor. Trey was the animation director. Sorry. <laughs> you get okay. my credit, guys. <laughs> yeah, my bad, Trey. Um, I love your work. Uh, so he he goes and he makes this movie that's entirely, in, it's a stop motion film entirely in black and white that is just so remarkable. I mean, there's not a there's not a beat in that movie that just does not have wonder in it. It's just such a great piece. Um, how- oh, by the way, for, no, for those that are fans, we shot it in, a, um, a, in color. Um, it, I think it's the way they used to do black and white films. They'd use a limited palette. So it's all shot in color and they used a, whatever software it was to do a, a black and white render afterwards. But um, so they would, everything was lit in color, but then checked in black and white as well to see how the conversion would lay out. But it's quite weird to see some of the original shots with green grass. They do exist. Oh, that's really funny. Well, how uh, how did you end up making it to that particular project like i'm one of the questions i i have here and i've just it it's probably less important later on in your career but like how do you interview for a stop motion animator job (laughs) like well um there's less need for it as i go on in my career because i've obviously got uh, a bigger and broader body of work but in the early days my very first job i did a a one-day interview where I had to animate for one day to a bit of dialogue. Um, Corpse Bride, I did a three-day interview, and that was a big pressure because I was used to doing um, 10, 15 second-a-day kids shows, which, as we've established, is very fast and very low-quality churned-out stuff. And to then go and do an interview where you're trying to do two seconds of animation a day, and it's an established style. It's um, So it's basically trying to see can you look at the shots we've already done and can you replicate that style with the characters that so that was a big jump for me going to a much higher quality and working much slower to get there and then for example after corpse i did an interview ah my next time going back to ardman animations was to do creature comforts usa which is lots of talking plasticine animals and even though i'd done corpse bride i was a pretty um established animator by this stage 
um, I hadn't done any plasticine. So I, I needed to do a, a dialogue test with a talking um, lion. I think it was a lion um, where I'm having to sculpt the mouths and deal with plasticine eyelids. So it's not really a case of can I animate? It was a case of can I animate with plasticine? And there's definitely been times in my career where whether I'm working with fabric or felt or sculpting plasticine in a completely different style to the Ardman style for Chuck Steele, for example, which is a film with a very different shaped faces to the classic Nick Park style. Um, you've got to come into you're basically coming into a new, new environment and the, the audition is to try and demonstrate can you adapt your work to fit in with our style of work? So I, I, I tell you what, maybe a way of looking at it would be if you're a painter, if you're if you're Vincent van Gogh and you can do van Gogh paintings really well and you go for a job interview to work for um, Picasso, <laughs> can, can you adjust your style to do it Picasso's style? It's so I, I see myself less as an artist and more as a craftsman who has to come in and um because don't forget I, i'm one of maybe 20 animators 25 animators on a film so we all need to work to as similar a style as possible um and when we well we, we can talk about chicken run in a bit but uh, it was a lot of work learning to animate the in the, the style of the original chicken run so i i would say that's a good way to look at an animation audition it's basically coming in and they give you a go to see if you can do the job the way they want it. That's really cool. I had no idea that it was that in-depth. Uh, I mean, it has to be, right? They're investing in you for 10 months. You got to make sure that the person can survive a day there. Yeah, um, yeah. If you look at my Fantastic Mr. Fox test on my first days, I was doing it very much in a corpse bride kind of style. And the Wes Anderson style of movement is not all smooth and subtle and flowy. Wes Anderson is much more move, pause, move, pause, move, pause. So um, you, you get it wrong a little bit to begin with while you're trying to find the right balance. Um, I like to think of it as uh, the Goldilocks and the porridge. Um, you didn't get the porridge wrong. You either got it a bit too hot or a bit too cold and you need to make an adjustment and have conversation about uh, that porridge is a bit too cold try doing it a bit more like this that's my 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 way of looking at it yeah that's really interesting and i i find you know i think about you as like um i don't know the animation field is the wild west and you're a hired gun who goes and, and works for whoever's uh doing their you know doing the bidding <laughs> at that point in time um and you're you're so good about being able to just like meander through the different mediums whether it's uh you know um the 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 sort of uh traditional wireframe you know characters with uh fur on them or with plasticine or clay um you know being able to do replacement faces on pinocchio and then also have uh my language might be incorrect but like geppetto's face is like mechanized right and it has yeah. uh there's you're you're using little screwdrivers or little components to sort of move those faces around whereas uh you know, in other interviews, you've referenced uh, certain people who are used to one particular type of animation and that ability to just wade through to a new employer is kind of difficult. Um, oh, and then even uh, working in felt, uh, you know, stuff like that when you're working on the house. Like, I'm I'm curious yeah. about like uh, 
like if we move on to like Pinocchio, uh, it seems like it's, it's the culmination of a lot of different types of animating that you have been picking up over the years kind of culminates into that film. Um, what sort of what sort of strengths do you think you brought to the table for that film and what sort of uh, either weaknesses did you like notice other animators not having or that you needed to find yourself mm-hmm. building building in yourself to be able to be successful because that was obviously a huge what did you say a second and a half per shooting day was kind of what you were aiming for mm. yeah goodness um yeah i mean I, I think one of the strengths that i brought i probably was one of if not the most experienced well would know one of the most experienced with mechanized heads as you say that these things uh, Geppetto's head is made out of silicon rubber and it's got various um ball and sockets under the lips under Geppetto's mustache under his eyebrows so you can move them around with your fingers and twist them or maybe put allen keys in the in the ears to make the jaw mechanism go up and down i i've had a lot of experience with that a lot of the guys in Portland, Oregon are used to the 3D printed faces, which is like taking a mask off the character and putting a, a different mask on, which is what Pinocchio had, a, a whole series of different masks every time his face changes. And you've got a, it was literally a pizza box that all the Pinocchio faces went in as, as our, our our library of Pinocchio faces. Um I mean, uh, but I, I I do think in terms of what, I, what, what can I bring, what can I not bring? I mean, I've still got to copy the style of Pinocchio and Geppetto that other people have established. So I've got to, but I was quite used to this by now, coming into a different production, seeing what's, how Geppetto moves, how Pocono moves, how can I replicate that? How much is too much? Um, yeah, I, I, I feel that that's just what I, I see the start of a job as doing. Let, let me do so, let me quickly do the research into how you do things here and let me have a go at replicating that. That's how I see myself. I'm not, I obviously bring my own creativity to the show, but I've got to do it within certain parameters. Um, and I, you know what? Um, the positive comes from a negative. Um, we, in those early days, when I was really struggling to get work as a young actor, trying to get your first acting gig, to see it like that. I was going from one company to another back in the United Kingdom, working on different programs for a short period of time because I just wanted to get work anywhere I could do. And I was struggling. Sometimes I'd get two days on a show. Some days I'd get two weeks on a show and then I'd be out of work for two months. So I was having to come into different environments, work with different directors, puppets I'd never touched before, but worked in different ways and trying to, quickly learn how things work here what the director's after and can I do that so the years of me struggling to stay in a job um, and traveling around is how I develop this adaptability and yes some people have mostly worked for one company so they're less able to adapt to different ways of doing things it's a pro and a con I might have drifted away from Pinocchio a bit on that um um, in terms of what I brought to the table, but um, I, I was, I, I was, I think I was a fairly reliable hand to bring in and uh, um, learn their style. I mean, you were trusted with some, you know, as always. I, it, the theme in your career is that you're trusted with like really notable sequences. <laughs> you know, I mean, the uh, the the discovering of the uh, the pine cone, 
like in mm. like is is one of your scenes, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to pose a question that belittles any other animators, but I just think it's really interesting that like whereas some people end up in a studio and they get really good at animating the way Leica needs or uh, you know, the way in which Ardman needs for these types of things or whatever. I mean, that's a bad example, but like, you know, you get into a studio and you learn how to do it the Disney way. You learn how to do it the Tim Burton way. You learn how to do it the Leica way. Um, And you're just all over the place. Like, you're like, Hey, you got my number. Cool. I'll come hang out with you. And I just think it's really interesting, but I want to, I want to just come back on that. I, I would just say the positive and the negative with me on that is that, um, the positive is I'm a very good jack of all trades. I'm very adaptable. I can come into a different environment and I can uh, figure it out and try and replicate that style and, and fit in. And um, and I also don't get too involved in the politics because um, I see myself a bit more like a fly on the wall. The, the, the negative of it is, is that I will never be the best at anything. Um, they will, if, if I go to Ardman, there'll be guys that know the Ardman style so much better than me. Uh, I go to Pinocchio, there's people that have already been there for 18 months before me, so they know it really, really well. So if I go to do a children's series, there's always people that are faster than me, for example. So um, I can be pretty good at most things in terms of styles of animation, but there's always people that are better than than me at certain things. Um, and then there'll be some people that aren't as versatile as me. So it's a, um, you, you win and you lose with these things. You can't be the best at everything. Uh, I'm pretty, I'm able to adapt to most things. That's, that's my strength. Well, that just gave me a perfect segue there, Tim, because, uh, you know, your adaptability has also turned you into a, a fairly renowned educator in the stop motion space. Um, and, you know, when we were first scheduling this, you were like, hey, got to go, going to Greece, going to teach some more people. Um, and then, uh, you know, you you travel all over the world uh, to be able to teach people and also kind of uh, get companies to do sort of uh, fun alternative ways of bonding with, with stop motion and things like that. And I'm curious how you found yourself in the education space and decided that teaching stop motion was something that you had a passion for. Mm. Well, um, again, one of these things where you sort of happened by accident or lack of opportunity leads to uh, you giving something else a go. I think it was I was only I'd only been animating for about two years when I was asked to go back to my university to give a, a talk. And I I was terrified. We mentioned about imp- imposter syndrome earlier. Why would um, around 50 people listen to me for an hour was how I felt. Um, and I, w- I was terrified that I'd be wasting everyone's time and they'd realize I was a complete fraud. Um, I thought, well, all I can do is talk about something I do know, which was my experience of graduating and trying to get my first job and how that went and what it was like. Um, and I then basically work was really quiet early in my career. So I was offered a, another teaching job back at that university. Where, where I studied myself, running the stop motion department. Again, I felt I was too young to be settling down teaching, but work was quiet. And what I had learned was that um, communicating about animation, like being able to talk through what was and wasn't effective with um, some of the student shots, that in itself was a very useful skill. So being able to 
describe what we're after describe um i like to use the word what, what's effective what's not so effective like the porridge being too hot or too cold i adamantly try and avoid something being right or being wrong because that elicits um the wrong reaction from people if if you tell something that someone is wrong you they 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 inherently tend to feel quite threatened and turned off um so i, I quickly went okay well Animation works a bit quiet right now, but learning to get better at communicating about animation, that's a skill that could be good to nurture. And I went back to animate. And years later, I was after Corpse Bride, I was asked to come and give a talk about. Um, again, I talked about my my own experience going from graduating, getting my career going and eventually working on the big dream of working on a Tim Burton film, having been a Nightmare Before Christmas fan myself. And a bit of what that was like. I, I came at it from a personal storytelling perspective, um, which I think relaxes people. I, I, because, I, I, well, I say this now with hindsight. I know that talking from a personal perspective makes the an audience feel they relate to you more. Back then, I more felt comfortable talking about my personal experience because I didn't want to be pretentious enough to pretend I knew more than I did. Um but that, that, that led to me doing um, guest lecturing at universities over the years, um, talking about Corpse and then uh, many other films I'd worked on as I did stuff. And I, I was quite happy being a, a bit of a guest speaker. Um, and to come back to your original question as to where we are now, I, about 10 years ago, I was asked to do an animation workshop, which is to define that. That's other people coming to animate and me giving them exercises and structuring a class whereby they're, they're, they've got a clear brief from me and they're learning by actually doing it. Um, and that grew and grew. And, um, and I say grew and grew. I mean, I, I had to buy some extra laptops and some cameras and some puppets to facilitate doing it, because believe me, it's better you come with your own equipment than rely on somebody else's. And before you knew it, I worked my way up to about 14 laptops and 15 puppets and a whole bag full of webcams and you're a, a, a mobile classroom. <laughs> um, so it, that, that grew and grew. And um, as you say, it, it could go into different directions. It's been corporate workshops for team building. I go to different countries, to festivals, to give a talk or give workshops. And more recently, I thought, you know what? I can do a much better job if I don't take my classroom in a suitcase, but I actually do it where I live in London City Island, uh, which is in the Docklands part of East London, um, people come to me and I can then um, have much more equipment for them to use. I've got all my memorabilia from different productions to show them and I can give them a much better experience. Um, and I, I think of it more as an experience than just a, a classroom um although obviously the class has to be top notch otherwise that that's the, the meat of why they're there but um that's that's grown from a good 10 years of doing stop motion workshops and really seeing um what people respond to because some things they might go in the wrong direction or what's the best way to describe something in a simple way for people to get their heads around it um, what resonates with people? What's the best way for them to absorb information, especially when we've got a short period of time for 
me to give an example, them to try it themselves. Uh, and, and what are they going to actually remember at the end of the week? How do our brains work for retaining information? Uh, I found, so man, I've given you a long winded journey, um, but I now see teaching in very much a sense of, um, um, how do we learn? How do we absorb information? What's the best way of describing things? And getting people to describe it themselves and describe it to each other, they're also, their, their brains are working and their brains are um, processing and understanding just by trying to describe it themselves. So it becomes a very interactive thing. And it's really fun to to read reviews from your students who are talking about their experiences. They're all very positive. And, uh, you know, talking about sort of what their takeaways are. And it seems that the experiential part, and I don't even necessarily mean animating, but I mean the like recognizing yourself as a character seems to be one of the most useful lessons that people see. Like I was watching a video of, uh, you know, everybody just squatting down. You got your feet flat on the floor, you're, <laughs> you're kneeling down. And the the you know you're asking them like what do you feel what do you notice like it's it's this like let's take this inward look is 90% of the lesson and then the technology and figuring out how this works and thinking one frame at a time that'll that'll get picked up eventually but we need to start with this exploration of self uh yeah. which i just really appreciate within your lessons because i think so many times people are i'm going to teach this new thing and they instantly get to like okay, the end product's here. Here's the closest I can get you to the end product. You finish the marathon. Whereas mm -hmm. you're taking it completely a step back and you're like, I don't really care about the end product. I care about the journey along the way. And if you can appreciate that journey, you'll be successful at this. Yeah, I mean, the the, the sad truth is I mentioned about um, the, you know, the, the 10,000 hours thing. I mentioned about how much how many hours I did this, I animated in my very first animation job. Now, when you've only got two or the ones I do in London are, are, are five days with people, uh, you don't have the gift of the hours of doing it. Um, and there's only so much you can tell people before they need to try it for themselves. So it has to be this balance between um, a couple of clear explanations, then you have a quick go. And I'd rather just have a quick go, um, like a, an hour tops. Um, and um, get their heads around it a bit more, and they'll get it a bit wrong. But then we'll do something else, which is the same or similar, and they'll know it a bit more. It's the Mr. Miyagi uh, wax on, wax off from Karate Kid kind of thing of do it, do it, do it until it becomes more instinctive. And, and I, well, maybe it's just me, but I can only remember about three new ideas at once. So I try and have just a few simple ways of approaching it. Um, and before before you try it, and then we can go a bit deeper, and then you try that, and then we can go a bit deeper, and then you try that. And, and each time, people won't get it perfectly right. But the next time, they'll be better at knowing what to look for that wasn't working. Um, it And Ryan, I'll tell you what, it, it evolved over the 10 years of trying to teach acting, teach performance and what i immediately started realizing was that people had no idea about um balance for example or they couldn't with a, with a puppy you've got to move the whole body at once they would just move the head or the arm they try and because it, it's just too much to think about so it became clear i had to to backtrack 
to get people to understand a bit about anatomy and how the body moves together as one um, and how, how balance works before we build on that to do acting. So it's like understanding anatomy a bit more, understanding balance. That's the foundation. You build your foundation before you make your beautiful house. Um, and if I didn't do it in that order, um, the house was falling down. Um, every If the foundations weren't right, everything above the foundations was in trouble, uh, was what I learned. Um, so it, it's come from my own um, trial and error and seeing how people respond to things. Uh, and one last thing, you talked about um, feelings. Well, what I, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very interested these days in um, our brains, in the human body, our body language, and um, the way we hold our body um, will affect the way we feel. And it will affect the way other people um, feel about us, the way people judge us, because we make assumptions about each other just in the first moment of seeing someone. So everything to do with um, how we physically move our body will affect how we feel inside. And it will affect how the person next to us um, interprets it. So all of this stuff about anatomy and balance is also a, a slowly building foundation for um, for performance. And I mean that as much in an instinctive and subconscious way of um, how we feel inside and how others interact with us as much as the, um, I mentioned subconscious and conscious bits earlier on. Um, what we're consciously trying to say and do, I, I, I'm more talking about um, what makes us feel good what makes us feel comfortable what makes us feel safe versus the opposite of what makes us feel unsafe um, um what makes us feel nervous what makes us feel tense so all of that um and you can see why this starts to become quite psychological in the way that i teach but but it's taking the initial issue of balance and anatomy and then slowly building it into performance it's awesome. And I, I just really feel like um, we need those types of resources. You know, there, there's been multiple references today about the fact that, um, you know, Toy Story came out in 95. That was the year that I started my career. It's amazing. I still have a job in stop motion. And I feel like your passion going out and uh, being demonstrated and taught to other people and others understanding the work that goes into this is what helps keep these types of art forms alive as technology uh, becomes such an integral part of all creative procedures in stop motion, there's still a hope that, you know, you're only going to be thinking about things one twenty-fourth of a second at a time because that's half the beauty of it. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's funny. I'm obviously probably more known now for my teaching as much as my, and my, my public speaking um, at festivals as I am for the films that I've worked on. Um, but again, it all kind of happens through meandering yeah. um, um, opportunities or lack of opportunities that led me in a slightly different direction. And there's definitely been times in my career where I've had to think, mm, I'm doing a bit too much teaching at the moment. I'm getting away from actually animating. 
Or there's other times where, man, I've been in a dark studio for the last two years. It'd be quite nice to go out and talk to people. So I there's there's times where I think, okay, I'm going to try and steer the ship in a slightly different direction and see if I can find opportunities in that direction and do a bit less of the opportunities that are taking me down a path I'm trying to st- steer away from a bit. But um, I, I, I wouldn't be able to um, say that much of this was a conscious decision where I am now. I think you're you're going with the flow to an extent and making judgments as to a bit more of this, a bit less of that um, as you do. So Um, yeah. (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is, you know, uh, that I I think it's just interesting that that theme of balance is something that you have to be hyper-focused on. And that's the first thing that you're teaching students about. Right. Um, but you for the last, uh, if I'm calculating it, uh, eight months or so have been working or let me rephrase, uh, for eight months or so you were working on, uh, a film that's coming out in, uh, by by the time of this airing in just about a week and a half, you've been working on uh, chicken run Dawn of the nugget, which is coming out December 15th on Netflix. And it's directed by Sam fell who, uh, you know, directed Paranorman. Um, and I believe we said directed Flushed Away. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, now it is, is doing this sequel to to Chicken Run that is coming out 20 years-ish after the initial one. <laughs> um, you know, you're back at Ardman, And I, I don't know if I completely covered this for listeners at home. So for people who are, when, I, when we keep saying Ardman and we're talking about Morph and we're talking about Creature Comforts, I'm not sure we've quite done a good job of like describing it, but Ardman is a studio that's based in the UK. It started in the seventies, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it, they, they were doing commercials. Uh, it's what Peter Lord and um, Dave Spokeston. Thank you, uh, Dave Spruxton. And uh, they were they wanted to start a stop motion studio. They created this uh, employee owned company um, that has been doing. You mean in the seventies? In the seventies, they were teenagers when they started it. Well, they uh, were still employee owned, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yes, that's very true. Yes, <laughs> um, and then employee owned. Yes, yes, yeah, and I believe they got started because they got uh, recognized by the BBC, and they uh, you know started doing some work for there. But uh, they eventually found uh, another partner in the name of Nick Park, who created Wallace and Gromit. Um, and their studio uh, attained the recognition of Steven Spielberg, uh, and they partnered with DreamWorks to do Flushed Away and Chicken Run uh, and uh, Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. But basically, to put it in perspective, this is a, a, a fascinating, really important st- company dedicated to the art of stop motion uh that has been uh been going for a very long time um and does a lot of really interesting projects and you kick off your career not in animation but in uh some puppet making stuff with uh you know rice krispies and now you're back there learning the ardman way again uh with with chicken run donna the nugget and i'm curious about how has it felt to like return to their playground again uh, to just sort of see what the feature film world is like in that space. And it's my first time doing a feature film with them as well, because um, I'd done six months of Creature Comforts, which is animated talking with plasticine mouths, Nick Park style. So I was quite used to the animated talking. I'd done um, worked on a couple of series of Shaun the Sheep. So I was quite used to the style of how the bodies move, because that's not talking, it's all body language. Put the two together and um, you've got walking talking chickens um and um 
it, it, so I felt I came in pretty confident that I'd be able to pick up the style, but it was actually, uh, there was a big induction process. I had four weeks of testing and initially I thought, do I really need four weeks? You know, it's very, very kind of you that you feel the schedule is good enough that I can take four weeks, but um, goodness, I needed it. I really did. Because if, if you think that um, the original chicken run, and there's quite a few of the animators who are on the original chicken run, um, they, there's a very set style for the shape of the necks, the shape of the beaks, the eyebrow, the whole eyebrow thing when they go into a frown and when they look anxious, uh, very specific shapes that you do and don't do. And let's not forget, we're sculpting plasticine to try and get these shapes. And what you can't have is 25 animators all sculpting Rocky or Ginger in a slightly different way. We need consistency amongst all the animators. So, um, yeah, I, I, it, even my first shots, I, I was, I was comfortable with the acting, but I was checking all the time the eyelids, the shadow over the eyes the shape of the neck as it curves into the beak, the shape of the eyebrow, the uh, they call it combs, the little plumage that Rocky has at the top of his hair or um, 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 the, the shape of that. So I was just checking everything was on model is what we call it. Uh, and that was hard work to begin with checking. Is that the right shape? Is that, yeah, is that, the, is that shadow above the eyes right um check 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 whereas the acting i was i was comp i was comfortable with um and yeah i had um chicken run people who were happy to look over my shoulder give me advice but also tell me where i was going a bit wrong it's that that porridge getting the the balance right thing so uh, and and let's be honest on the face of it i was super chuffed to be working on chicken run too the first one is a classic and I, I, I've had so many people, you tell them you're working on Chicken Run 2 and you see their faces light up because it's it came out in 2000. So there's a lot of people who were very young kids when this came out, who watched it to death when they were children. And now they're incredibly excited in their mid 20s that the sequel was coming out. So I, I, I was I, I want to keep that thing inside my heart of I'm working on a cool project. Uh, I'm lucky to be here, soak it up, Tim, and um, yeah, um, appreciate that you're you're lucky enough to be on this. Um, yeah, um, really, really proud of it. That's awesome, and uh, you know, I know you're you, you've been doing some publicity for it, and uh, you also have uh, kindly signed a non-disclosure agreement. So uh, we got to be very careful about <laughs> the the types of things that we talk about in regards to it, but. Um, I mean, I, I think at the, you know, the heart of it, I, I think that it's really cool to just see stop motion animation always reinventing itself, but sticking to its roots. And, you know, uh, here 20 years later, like Ardman uh, or Netflix or whomever could have decided, uh, all right, we're going to we're going to sort of pay homage to this, but we're going to go in a different direction and we're going to do it in CGI or we're going to do a two dimensional uh, you know, cell animated or or a flash animated uh, type of type of product, and they're so dedicated to making sure that the spirit uh, of the mm. the original is is being carried on twenty years later to a whole new generation of people who can just binge watch it on re repeat on Netflix. 
Yeah, and it, well, it's a big responsibility for someone like Sam Fell, the director, um, who he was he was around at Ardman around when they were doing the first Chicken Run. Um, I believe I think he did one shot. He animated one shot on the first Chicken Run. He told me so when the chickens from behind, uh, Rocky in the distance, I think going off. He told me. Um, so the responsibility is more on their side and for someone like Sam to try and get it right. But, you know, he won't take that responsibility lightly. And the same with us animators. We want to do it justice. Maybe that's the best phrase. We want to, if we're going to do it, we want to do it justice. You know, if you do it and you, there's so many people with a positive memory of the first Chicken Run film. Um, I think the same with any classic film you try and do a sequel of. And we've, we all can think of a few sequels that um, destroyed our memory of the original. So this doesn't do it. I, I've seen a test screening. Uh, it's, it's, it's fun. It's happy. It whizzes by. It, it's re I, I, I really, really, yeah, the people were coming out of the test screen and go, wow, it's really good. Um, um, and if that's what I'm hearing as well from, from early reviews as well. I think they've done a very good job. I think, um and sam needed to take the original but also make it his own um so it's a tough balance to strike um guys can you can watch it for yourselves and judge but i don't think there's going to be many people going home disappointed i i i really like the film i think they've done a very good job i mean i love chicken run is one of the greatest homages to war movies of all time i mean you watch the great <laughs> yeah. escape and then you watch chicken run and you're like oh man i feel like i just watched two versions of the best movie ever <laughs> um, yes. and i'm very excited to see sort of what what is paid homage to and just uh the history of animation and the history of film that makes itself into uh chicken run dog dog it i think it's going to be great um so tim you've been remarkably sorry i could mean to cut you off no i'm i'm, I'm just nodding because um uh i'm so proud to be on the new version but um, uh, you've got to do something new, but you've also got to pay homage to the old thing. And I think they've struck the balance. I really, really do. Um, uh, believe me, I've worked on films that uh, um, were not turning out the way you might hope they are. And you're um, so that this is one I really feel they've got the balance right. Um, I'm not being endorsed or paid to say that. I'm really happy that I think Sam did a fantastic job. Um, yeah. Well. <laughs> Well, I just want to say you've been so kind with your time today and you uh, have just given so much interesting perspective. Is there any any topics or any ideas that we haven't covered yet that uh, you'd like to either share with the audience or uh, or throw out there before before we depart? Oh, there's, there's one thought that crossed my mind earlier um, and we started and then we moved on. And uh, I I think it's the fact that it comes back to the notion of adapting or 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 knowing what you're doing um and they you you never fully know what you're doing and in fact if you completely knew what you're doing it's hardly stimulating um and what i've really learned is to constantly be open to change based on the situation as it plays out in front of me so maybe a simple way of it is to say um i tried to go in with a plan but I'm absolutely aware that the part of the plan is that the plan is going to have to change. And I, I was thinking earlier about when I was giving my mentoring week in London um, just two weeks ago, and I, I'm trying to deliver the next bit of um, information to prep the 
whatever the class is. And I can see maybe there's not enough oxygen there. I can suddenly see when a few people are, I've lost someone's attention or something and I've got to change what I'm doing and move it on. Or I, I, I gave someone a brief and it's not going quite the way that I expected it to. And it'd be the same with me doing an animation shot or the same with me planning how I hope my year is going to pan out or what I'd like to focus on. Um, it's this constant acceptance that um, I want to be clear what I'm trying to do. Definitely. Um, but but being well aware that I'm going to have to change direction slightly, steer the ship in a slightly different direction as I go. It's a, And I, I, I've actually come to embrace that rather than that being that my plan wasn't good enough in the first place or well it's not about reading the room badly it's um or getting it getting the situation wrong um it's recognizing that ah in this particular situation this isn't quite going the way i expected it to i need to change course or make an adjustment and that's uh, years ago i would have felt that i was getting things wrong now i recognize that's completely part of the process you've got to be somewhat fluid and go with it like like you haven't got every bullet point of this interview completely nailed because you don't know what i'm half of what i'm going to say and i'm going to answer one question <laughs> um, that's who you were planning in three questions time and you're going to have to keep deviating as you go as well so uh, um yeah recognizing amount of go with the flow and being completely comfortable with that um, and not taking it as a personal critique on myself um, has been a very good part of my process. Um, yeah, don't know how much I took your interview off course in various places, but that, as you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> and that's the, absolutely. And uh, if it went as predicted or as hoped, uh, none of us would learn anything new, and that would just be a waste of our time. So I'm I'm okay with the way in which this has processed, Tim. I think we did great. Um, if it all went if it all went exactly as we expected, then well, uh, where's the fun in that, eh? Absolutely, it's not. But speaking of fun, for anybody who is interested in following your fun and your journey, um, where do they find you online? What's the what's the best way to keep up with Tim Allen? Uh, well, my handle for most things is Tim Allen Animation on x which we now have to say in a long abbreviate a, a long version formerly known as twitter it's just tim animation because they didn't let me have let they wouldn't let me have enough letters but everything's tim allen animation um my website's currently down i've been too busy to look into it but that's tim allen animation.co.uk but you'll find that if you go to instagram or anything else um and i will put things online as and when I get a gap in between my wonderfully busy animation and teaching schedule, which is, there's not many gaps, <laughs> but I update as I go. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a joy to, to sort of see what you're doing and catch those little glimpses, um, you know, just between everything. Cause I think that, uh, you know, if, I, I, in the in the history of like almost any famous person like there or any successful person their uh biography gets really boring in the middle of their career because they're just too busy cranking out good stuff <laughs> like that's the story <laughs> um and it's kind of true that my social media is like it, it kind of looks pretty good my social media for what people tell me but uh uh it's a bit of a i have to throw a post out every so often just because something i did is coming out and i need to 
do a, a thing to to pay respect to the people I worked with. Um, but I'm normally too busy doing the next thing, which is um, so which is months ahead already. Um, so social media is just me. There's no team of people managing my brand. It's me as a freelancer who only gets a spare five minutes to stick something out there. Well, awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking far more than five minutes to chat with us today. Thanks for coming on, Tim. It's been a pleasure, Ron. Thank you. How wonderful is Tim Allen? What an absolute sweet, pleasant person. I'm so thankful that I got to connect with him. I hope you found his interview one-tenth as inspiring as I did. It's always wonderful to talk about history, craft, hearing stories about chance encounters, it's just fascinating the way in which we always uh, add layers of complexity to what we think happens to uh, these amazing creative people. And in reality, they're just working hard. And that is definitely what Tim Allen is doing. So, Tim, thanks so much for being on the show, coming all the way across the pond uh, just to chat with us. It was uh, it was a true honor. If you want to see Tim in action, please uh, mark your calendars for December 8th to watch Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget, which will be uh, broadcasting on Netflix. There's also a slew of other films that uh, he's made, including Pinocchio, which you can watch on Netflix. Uh, check out some of that stop motion amazingness that he designed. Next week, we head to an equally fantastic place as we explore the land of Oz. I hear there's a wizard there, maybe a lost girl and her dog, a scarecrow, a tin man, and a lion too. We'll be heading into the magical land of Oz with John Fricky. John is the foremost historian on The Wizard of Oz and Judy Garland. He's written a number of books and has done DVD commentary and Laserdisc commentary for The Wizard of Oz as well as other Judy Garland films such as Meet Me in St. Louis and The Pirate. Please plan to come back on December 20th for the next episode of Meditations with Ryan Zumbach, where we're going to fly through a tornado and make our way to the Emerald City. And I am beyond excited to chat with Mr. John Fricky. If you like what you hear, please spread the word, like, subscribe, share, and most importantly, please review the show. Your support and publicity is what makes this podcast stay alive, and I truly appreciate your collaboration. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and please remember to make space for conversation because you just might learn something.